preaching several sermons here, uh, inspired by a writer and speaker named Brennan Manning, who was a uh, priest uh, until he uh, decided to get married, at which point he couldn't be a priest anymore. Um, but had a profound impact on me as I heard him speak uh, in about 2008 and got to meet the man and spend a, just a couple moments with him. Um, but he was a man who was an alcoholic and through his whole life, even as a Christian writer and speaker and priest, would sometimes really fall back into that. And he had just a profound understanding of grace and the love of God. And so I, I just decided over the next few weeks to to read his stuff and go back into that a little bit. Again, the name is Brennan Manning. You can find some great talks by him uh, on YouTube. He's much better than I ever could do this stuff. And so it's not really his stuff. I'm just kind of being inspired by him. Uh, and so we are in Isaiah chapter 64, if you want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 64, probably some lines in here will be familiar to you. This is an oft-quoted chapter of the Bible, but I'm going to read all of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when, fires, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When, did, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember your ways, uh, you, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Uh, filthy rags, who you might remember from the older translations. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Here is the reading of God's Word. It starts when we're children. 
When did you walk? When did you talk? The big thing now is percentiles. Where are you in your height and weight percentiles for your age? When we go to school, we begin to get graded. Jordan, your penmanship is terrible. I wish you had studied a little bit harder at your spelling. We are told radical things as children. That we can be anything we want to when we grow up. That we can accomplish anything we set our minds to. But as we get older, this appears less and less true. The middle school lunchroom teaches us that there are certain tables we belong at and there are certain tables that we do not belong at and will never fit in. We excel at some things, but not at others. Not everyone can be the starting pitcher or the center on the basketball team. We probably heard voices along the way that were not so positive. That gym teacher that said we would never amount to anything or that parent that expected us to be perfect, just like our older brother or sister. Eventually, we came to realize that we're 5'9", we have no ability to jump, and our dream of playing in the NBA is probably not going to work out. That one might have been a little autobiographical. But we're better in some areas, though. We apply for colleges by having a better SAT scores than other students. Apparently, much of our lives are going to be, and much of our futures are going to be determined as we are compared to others. We compete for jobs, for positions on the football team, and for members of the opposite sex. And all along the way, we're a mixed bag. Some things we can be proud of and some things to be kept secret. Things to brag about and things to lie about. We learn to have self-confidence. Self-esteem, we're told, is to be important. You've got to think highly of yourselves. But of course, deep down, and we can hide it, but we have also a lot of self-doubt and self-hatred. Things that we don't like about ourselves or that person that strangely looks us back in the mirror. We don't let on. We keep appearances. After all, as long as I am in the upper percentile, right? As long as I'm not as bad as that person, as long as I'm more together than that family over there, then I can keep some measure of that self-hatred at bay. Church helps this, doesn't it? Church is a pretty easy game to win at. Show up, dress decently, don't cuss, don't share what you're really thinking or doing most of the time. Say the right prayers, know when to stand up and when to sit down, and you can look like you've really got it together. After all, isn't that what God really wants for us? To have it all together. And somewhere along the lines, God begins to sound like that gym teacher. And God begins to sound like that critical parent, or those voices that are always watching, thinking that you're never going to accomplish things, and always pointing out what is wrong. We don't know what to do. Should we hate ourselves or love ourselves? Most of us are a mixed bag. And where does God fit in in our view of ourselves? When we have really high self-esteem, it's like we got it all together. We don't really need God. When we hate ourselves and when we're frustrated with things about ourselves, we also tend to get frustrated at God like he's not present. Or why didn't you send me into a different direction? This passage from Isaiah 64 is written 
later in the book of Isaiah, which means it's probably written after the Israelites come back from exile. Think about the crisis that they've been in. They were God's people, God's chosen ones. They had read all the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet they had been unfaithful. And though the prophets had warned them, they had worshipped other gods and ended up in exile. Which means they ended up carried away from their promised land, their temple destroyed, no way of getting back to God. And in other countries, and we, we know from the text that many of them and their children ended up having foreign names. They totally started to lose their heritage. But now, by the grace of God, they're back. Back in the homeland. Back in the promised land. And suddenly they have an opportunity. They have an opportunity to do things different. But how should they view themselves? They long for God. Long for the God that they've read about. That they've sung about. But they also know that they've made some mistakes along the way that have separated them from God. I mean, hear how this, this chapter of Isaiah starts again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. I mean, yeah, we see this great longing for God in this text. But what does that mean? It means that they ultimately feel like God isn't there. They're in a moment of desperation. They understand that things should be different, but they're not how they should be because they had been unfaithful. In verse 6, this, this is said even strong, more strongly. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now, I don't mean to be graphic, but this is a pretty graphic text, actually. And the English does not do justice to what this, this text is really saying. I've got to say it specifically. You've got to understand this. When that text says polluted garment or filthy rag, it's a pretty disgusting reference, actually. Garment or rag is just what it is. It's a cloth. But the idea of polluted or filthy, it comes from the Hebrew word meaning like a period of time, a length of time. And in that language, just like our language, the, that word, period, gets referenced also to a, women, a woman's menstrual cycle. And so when this says filthy rags, this is talking about what we would call pads, what they had in those days. These are used pads. I'm sorry, it's gross, it's graphic, but it is what the Hebrew says. What Isaiah says in, in the most graphic way he can think of is that all the good stuff that you've done before God is still just a used pad. It's nothing. It's nothing before God. You can put on the facade, but deep down, even a lot of the good stuff that you and I do, we do for selfish reasons. I want to be noticed when I do good stuff. And when I do bad stuff, honestly, I just don't often feel that much remorse. Isaiah uses this graphic image to tell the people exactly where they stand before God. The way Brandon Manning used to talk about it is that we're all ragamuffins. 
I don't know if you know the term ragamuffins. We don't use that term very much anymore. It's kind of a generational term, I think. But ragamuffins is a reference to children who were poor and would wear dirty and loose-fitting and unkempt clothes. Um, there's even a kind of a cat called a ragamuffin cat, and it's got very kind of rough fur around it. Ultimately, we're ragamuffins. Ultimately, we're broken. And all the good stuff we do, well, we, if we compare it to other people, like a murderer we see on TV, well, I'm not that bad. But the comparison isn't the murderer we see on TV. The comparison is, are you holy as God calls you to be holy? And before that, all of us are nothing. Nothing. When I stand before God, I have nothing to show for myself but filthy rags. And I could try to put on a tie and I could try to keep myself together and keep myself composed, but, but that's not the way it is. I can play, I can personally play the pastoral role real well. Oh my goodness, though, is compared to compared to God is nothing. We can dress up, but really we are live lives of torn jeans and torn holiness. But here's the good news. The text doesn't stop there, does it? Isaiah 64 goes on to say, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, Lord, we are your people. Think about this journey. This isn't a journey of of self-discovery and self-esteem. The Bible is perfectly clear about our flaws and about our brokenness. There's no self-esteem in the Bible. There's only God-esteem. But here is the good news. That God knows exactly who you are, exactly what you've done, exactly those moments that you have kept locked away and let no one else know about, and God loves you anyway. As Brendan Manning used to say, I could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than I can comprehend the wild, uncontainable love of God. God loves you as a son and daughter. And He knows you not as you pretend to be. Not as others think you are. God loves you as you really are. God, you're never going to do anything to earn more of God's love You're never going to do anything that's going to diminish God's love because God's love is not really based on you. It's really based on His radical, loving nature. And what happens is, as we heal our image of God, where our God doesn't sound anymore like that critical parent or God doesn't sound anymore like that gym teacher, but we really understand God's radical love for us, we also begin to see our desperate need to heal our image of ourselves. Not that we think too highly of ourselves, but also not that we stay depressed and hating ourselves either. If God loves you and I, how dare we think too lowly of ourselves? How dare you and I judge ourselves based on what others think or even what we think? As if God would share the same opinion of you that you have of you. God's opinion is much stronger than that. And to say otherwise is to offend God. If I told you that I thought my children were beautiful, and you said, no, they're not beautiful. Or I said, I said of my wife, that my wife is just a great person. You said, no, 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 your wife's a terrible person. You don't just offend my children and my wife. Who else are you offending? 
me. You're offending my tastes and my preferences. So that if God looks at you and sees you as a child of His, loved, beloved as the Bible talks about, how dare that you and I have any other opinion of ourselves other than that? But it's not based on our own merit. That's the key here. You've got to have the earlier part of Isaiah to really appreciate the later part. You've got to understand that you're a ragamuffin so that you can really understand how loved you are. So that you can start to live a life without fear of judgment, without fear of self-hatred, and without fear of God. God is a stranger to self-hatred. God is a stranger to judgmental attitudes. When Jesus lives on this earth, he hangs out with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Matthew, the tax collector, the unnamed woman at the well, who apparently everybody else knew her name except the people that wrote the Gospels, the lepers, Paul, the Christian killer, and yes, even you and I. Right about the time that I heard Brennan Manning, I went through a retreat called Quenonia. Um, some of you may be familiar with Catholic Crescio or Tres Dias, which is the Methodist version of this event. But it's a three-day event, um, and, and they're different, but this Protestant one, Quenonia, was based on the parable of the prodigal son. And you spend the first, the first evening and the first night in total silence. There's no talking. It, it was killer. But we heard talks about sin and about where we were with God, and we spent that entire night in silence. And it was rough. But the next day, we started to talk about and sing about God's love. And during the day, we got this stuff called Palanca. And Palanca was these letters of, of love and appreciation from family and from friends and even from total strangers. The word Palanca is a Spanish word and it refers to like a lever. That by being loved, we get picked up. And the idea of the retreat is that we get picked up out of that state of silence and remorse and into a place of joy. And the, the dinner on Saturday night is a big banquet because Quenonia is based on the story of the prodigal son where you end up in the pigsty. You come to your senses and the father runs to you and gives you his love. About two months after I did a Quenonia weekend, I did the same weekend, helped lead the same weekend, but called Kairos. And it was a weekend for prisoners uh, in a local correctional facility. Um, same kind of weekend, a little bit different flavor, obviously. Metal detectors and a kind of some other elements there. But I had heard about God's love and God's grace and experienced it on my Queen and E weekend. But I learned it in a whole different way, working with those prisoners. Because, you know, my, when I met with those prisoners, they, they were not that different than me, believe it or not. And I knew if I had come from the background that many of them had come from, I probably would have been in the exact same place that they were. And I was honest enough to admit that. But to see that God's love and God's grace was there for that person who was a rapist and that person who was a murderer just gave me a different perspective of God's love. Isaiah 64 does not sugarcoat it. Our good works are worthless. We have all really messed up, and yet we're still invited back into the family. The way of Jesus is not a way of self-esteem or self-hatred. It is a way of God-esteem, and it is grace-oriented. 
Why is it so hard for us to accept God's love? Is it because we just feel that unworthy? Is it because we have never really experienced God? Oh, maybe we know about Him. We've heard about Him. Talked about Him. Sung about Him in church. But we don't know Him. If you're scared of God, then you don't know Him. If you are stuck in self-pity and self-hatred, then you have not experienced the God that we proclaim here on every Sunday. And my challenge to you is that you try to. That you call out to that God and say, I want to be done with all of this self-hatred, all of this false self-esteem. I want to just understand myself as a ragamuffin and be fully accepted by your love. Live a life that is a love affair with God. A God who is so crazy about you that even though you are a ragamuffin, He came all the way to earth and all the way to the cross to be with you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love and for your grace. And I pray that you would help us to accept your love. And to move away from our own frustrations with ourselves and just live out of the reality that we are loved and chosen by you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.